Well, it's great to be with God's people, worshiping Christ for the truth of the gospel, isn't it? And uh, so thankful uh, for that, that we have praised and worshiped Him for today, and we'll continue now as we open God's Word. It's my privilege to be able to share uh, the message here with you today from 1 Peter. And uh, it's also been wonderful, though, in our service to honor the esteemed Pastor Gary Butler for 10 years of pastoral ministry here at the beginning of the service. And, you know, he's, I don't think he's in this service now, but I just want to take a moment to express my own personal appreciation to Gary and his wife, Carrie, for their friendship, but also for their unwavering commitment to love the people uh, here at Bethel Church. There's one legacy that Pastor Gary leaves is that he has loved the people of our congregation well, and he has loved them wisely, uh, too. And we are so thankful for that. And I'm sure if he could have more time here to talk and tell you about his 10 years here at Bethel, there's some things I'm sure he would say. He and I have talked about these things, about just how the time has gone so fast, but how that time has also compelled him and should compel all of us to love people more, because this time is so fleeting, it is so quick, Gosh, shouldn't we just try to make the most of it? Well, it seems to me Pastor Geary has done that. We're thankful for him for that. And that sentiment is also just very appropriate for us to consider now because that sentiment is exactly the sentiment found within this text of 1 Peter that we're going to look at today. And We're going to conclude our study of chapter 1 in 1 Peter this morning, primarily looking at verses 22 uh, to the end. And so I want to begin just by reading that text. And would ask that you would open your Bible, your phones, whatever you have to this passage. My aim today is to direct us continually to this text so that we see from it clearly what God is saying and has to say to us out of it. So get it open and let me read it uh, now. Read with me. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another with earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, <clears throat> but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, there's one key imperative or command that pops out in this text, and it's at the end of verse 22, when Peter writes, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now keep that command in mind because we're going to come back to it in a bit. This command is one of the central applications of this passage, but it is an application that is built on other truth. Truth that I think we need to unpack first because in doing so we will find a better understanding for the motivation that we ought to have that motivates us to do this thing called love. And so I'm actually going to work somewhat backwards through the passage today and eventually we're going to come back and we'll conclude here at verse 22 with the command to love one another earnestly. From a pure heart. So let's start more towards the end this time and looking particularly at verses 24 and 25. Let me read those again. So all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is the good news that was preached to you. Here Peter is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting particularly Isaiah chapter 40, which is one of the most beautiful, famous, rich passages in the uh, chapters in the book of Isaiah, and this particular passage calls up from within it an illustration from agriculture to really make an important point. And there's a comparison here. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. Now, flesh, Peter essentially means our earthly life and all that is in it. So our health, our accomplishments, our material, material possessions, our skills, our abilities, status, 
personal achievements, general welfare, these things in life. Peter is saying these things are like grass. They're like the flower of grass, which he then says the grass withers and the flower falls. Now, you don't have to have a master's degree in botany or agriculture to really understand uh, what he's talking about here. All plants, all flowers, all vegetation, they all eventually fade and wither, don't they? Men, think about those flowers that you bought for your special someone on Valentine's Day just a few weeks ago. What happened? Are they still there? The vase looking as nice as the moment that you first presented them? No, certainly not. Mine aren't. Valentine's Day, I brought home to my wife a nice bouquet of tulips, and they looked wonderful for a time. They looked great. But then they began to do this number. They're just there, and they started to fall over like this, right? And their petals began to fall off. And in about a week, you know what happened? They went in the trash because they had withered. They faded. They fell. This happens to all flowers. They're here for a while, for a time. They're beautiful, and then they are gone. And it makes me wonder, why do we keep buying flowers? I mean, it seems so foolish to me. Maybe the next time I should just bring home a nice bouquet of plastic flowers. Use those for a while and storm away. And the next year at Valentine's Day, bring them out. Hey, remember these? Let's enjoy these wonderful plastic flowers again. Happy Valentine's Day. Okay, marriage tip number one. Men, as practical as that might be, don't do that. All right? Yes, that would be the practical thing to do. But chances are likely most women are probably going to have a hard time seeing the practical wisdom in that. So you've got to bite the bullet. bullet. Be irrational. Get real flowers every now and then. But here's the myth behind the whole plastic flower thing. Even plastic flowers don't last. Many of you might have known I've been giving leadership for the past six months to establishing our latest campus in the Hobart Portage area. And I've been working to combine two churches together, raising up leadership, establishing ministry, overseeing the weekends, doing some teaching and preaching there, leading the services, all of that. Uh, So thankful for Pastor Dan, our new campus pastor here. He has taken the reins and really now giving full leadership to that. And we're very excited for the work that we believe God's going to do at that latest campus. But I've been given temporary leadership to that. And one of the things has also been efforts to upgrade the facility. And being that this new campus, it came about through a church merger with a very historic uh, church. It's been around for a long time. You know what happens to churches that have been around for years, right? They accumulate things. They never seem to throw anything away. And early on, we, really, we realized we needed a clean house because there were decades of stuff just stored in every corner in every room here. And we filled dumpsters and dumpsters of stuff. And there was this one room. This one room. It was about the size of a very large walk-in closet, kind of like this rug I'm on here maybe. And I kid you not, this large room, it was filled wall to wall, floor to ceiling, probably 10 shelves on each wall, full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of plastic flowers. And plants. It was like walking into a vinyl jungle. And I suppose for years people thought, well, if we ever need floral decor, let's go plastic so we can reuse it later. But you know what happened? All those plastic things, they got stored and they got dusty and they got faded and they got sticky. Because the plastic kind of started to degrade and they developed like this film on them. And so here was this dark room full of dusty, dripping plastic plants. Probably over a dozen very large trash bags full. And that's exactly where they ended up. In the trash. They weren't useful anymore. 
It didn't last, even though someone had great intentions that they would. You see, everything in this world fails and fades. Even our best attempts to create something that endures, it doesn't. And that's Peter's point that he's introducing to us here. Everything in this world fades. It all withers. None of it lasts. In other words, all of life is fleeting and perishable. All of life is fleeting and perishable. You know this to be true. That home that you've worked hard to build, that remodel project you've put so much time into, it looks great for a while. But after, after time, things start to break down. They need repairs, right? Or that hobby or personal interest that you have, that you pursue so much, eventually you lose, you lose interest in it. Or that athletic skill that you work so hard to develop, eventually you get older and your ability wanes. Or that accomplishment that you work at, at at your work, or that business that you strive to build. You know, there's glory in all of that for a time, but eventually those things become irrelevant. That accomplishment is outdated, and things move on. Certainly this is true with your own health. Our very lives mirror the flowers of the field. We, We have a season with a sense of vibrancy and youth to us, but then we start to age, and we slow down. And we begin to droop, and eventually we fall and we die. Our earthly life withers and fades away. Everything in this world has an expiration date. All of life is fleeting and perishable. This includes all of our talents, our health, our abilities, our accomplishments. Peter says, all flesh is like grass. Our very bodies break down and wither. And all of its glory is like the flower of grass. In other words, all the things that you and I achieve that are glorious, every accomplishment or every noteworthy thing that you or I do, it fades. It goes away. It doesn't last. Think of it this way. What's some real prideful accomplishment you have in your life? Perhaps it's some project at work, or you've done something around the home, or you have some craft you've completed. You made this beautiful scrapbook of family memories. Maybe it's a degree you've earned, a promotion you've received at work. Now, a hundred years from now, if Christ hasn't returned, who's going to still be talking about those things you've invested all that time in? Probably nobody. Special project at work, that will eventually be outdated. The business that you're working for probably someday will close. Or that beautiful craft or that painting that you're making, you know what? Someday that's going to end up in a landfill. And the wealth that you've achieved, your bank account someday won't exist because you won't exist. And that money will all be spent. I mean, personally, I've spent countless of hours, hundreds of hours, writing, develop leadership training materials and small group curriculum for our church, things that I hope have blessed people, to some I hope will continue to bless people. But you know what? There's going to be a day when all of that's forgotten. When everything I've written or every book that has my name on it will be in a landfill, every single one of them. It's just inevitable. Or I've received items from my grandparents that had immense personal value to them. But I didn't see any value in those trinkets. I didn't have any sentimentality attached to them. And so you know what? They ended up in the trash. And you've probably done the same thing yourself. If you've cleaned out the home of a loved one who's, who's passed. Thrown away all this stuff that they had that they thought was valuable. And you know what? Someday somebody is going to do that for you too. With all of your stuff. And even the whole of your life, 150 years from now, if Christ has not returned, how much are people really going to know and remember and talk about you? See, all your glory, it eventually fades and vanishes. 
except in the most unusual circumstances. If you get written in the history books, you have something that ends up in the Smithsonian. All, except in those instances, all your accomplishments are totally forgotten and eventually disregarded by others. And that's Peter's point. And that's pretty depressing, isn't it? You know, if there's nothing else beyond this world, how depressing would that be? If there's no reality beyond this life, if, we, if, if what we see now is all that there is, and there is no God, and there's nothing that is truly imperishable, that does not vanish, that does not fade, then the only logical conclusion we can arrive at is what a meaningless existence we have. Because if nothing endures, what's the point? If everything perishes, why should we care about anything? And secular philosophers have come to this very conclusion. This is the reason why atheists so often struggle with despair. Because they can't find meaning in life. If nothing endures, there is no ultimate meaning. There is no ultimate truth. There is no place where we can find hope. But, Peter is clear here that there is something that is imperishable. There is something that endures and lasts There's something that does not fade. There's something that is never forgotten. When he says, verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So something does endure. Something is imperishable. What is it? It is the word of the Lord that remains forever. Now, the word of the Lord, it's a biblical concept with all sorts of different meanings. Sometimes the word of the Lord is referring to the Bible or God's word. Jesus himself is sometimes referred to as the word. The word of the Lord often means a prophetic declaration or message that God provides himself. So the prophet Jeremiah received a word from the Lord. But here in this context, word of the Lord takes on a yet a different meaning. You could almost substitute the word work for word here. Word here is basically, it basically refers to a summary message or declaration about what God has done. So the word of God is essentially the message about the work of God. It is the summary communication of all the works that God has done. That is the word of the Lord. It is essentially the work that God has accomplished. So Peter's saying, all of life is fleeting and perishable, but the work of the Lord remains forever. The work of the Lord is everlasting and imperishable. The works of God remain forever. Despite all that fails and fades in this life, God's work lasts. It does not fade. It does not wither and fall. It endures. It does not perish. But what are God's works? You and I, we have our works. We have our projects. We have our accomplishments. What are God's works? What are God's accomplishments? What precisely has God done? Well, the Focus is defined actually here right for us clearly in the passage. In verse 25, the work or word of the Lord is, in verse 25, the good news that was preached to you. It is the good news. It is the gospel. The gospel is God's word. But but what exactly is the gospel? I mean, the gospel is a term that we throw around all the time. You need to believe in the gospel. You need to preach the gospel. You need to have a gospel-centered marriage. You need to live your life for the gospel. We... uh, Line ourselves with things like the gospel coalition. What exactly does the word gospel mean? Well, here's the most succinct way that I can define the gospel for you. The most succinct definition for the gospel that I can come up with is this. It is the central message of the Christian faith. 
The gospel is the central message of the Christian faith. Or, more specifically, it is the good news about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the saving work that God does in a person's life through Jesus. The gospel is God's work to bring salvation to his people. That's the gospel, and that is God's greatest work. God's greatest work is the gospel. Just consider what the gospel is in its entirety for a moment. The gospel is this, that the Father sent his son Jesus to take on human form, to be born of a human mother, to grow and to mature and to experience all the hardships of life, to be tempted as we are, yet without, not without, without sin, and to eventually be betrayed and to suffer a criminal's death on a cross, a death he did not deserve, but a death that he willfully accepted because he knew that that death was the only solution to the fleeting and perishable world in which all his people lived. And so he hung there on a cross in agony and unbearable pain as the guilt and wretchedness of God's people was transferred onto him, the innocent, spotless Lamb of God. And the wrath of God came down on him as he bore the sins of those who would believe. And then he died. His lifeless body was taken down from the cross. And it was placed in a cold, dark tomb. But Jesus did not stay dead. God raised him to life, demonstrating that Jesus is supreme over death. He's conquered it. He has defeated it. And now Jesus offers to share this new life to anyone who would believe in him. To those who trust in the gospel, the work of Christ, they experience a new spiritual birth, a rebirth. They are born again, and as such, their sins are forgiven, and they now relate to God as one of his own beloved children, and they have the promise of eternal life in his name. And this is not because of anything that we have done. It is not because of anything that we've earned or somehow achieved or deserved. It is something done only by God's good grace and mercy. It is a free gift. And it is the greatest gift that any of us could ever receive because it provides to us the most incredible blessings. Chief among them are eternal life and the assurance of our salvation. And that, my friends, is good news. It is good news indeed. Good doesn't even begin to describe it. This is the gospel. And it is the greatest work that God has ever done. Now, what happens in your heart as you consider the great work of God? What stirs up in your heart as you consider these things? Hopefully, worship. The desire for worship. Hopefully, excitement. Thanksgiving. Gratitude. Those are all appropriate and necessary responses to the gospel. But one response that Peter wants us to have here that he's driving at in this text is this. Hope. Hope. Peter wants us to consider the truth of the gospel in contrast with the fleeting nature of human life. He wants us to see that even though everything around us is fleeting and perishable, this work, this gospel, it endures. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This great work, this gospel, it is everlasting and it is imperishable. Jesus' work will endure forever. God's deeds will last for all of eternity. It will never be cast aside. His good work will never be forgotten. It is incorruptible, undefeatable, everlasting, imperishable. Nothing can undo what God has done. Never will God need to repair or refresh his plan. The accomplishments of the gospel are permanent and unchanging realities. 
And they are realities that if you believe in the gospel, have also been born in you. And Peter emphasizes this now in verse 23 when he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word, the summation of all of his accomplishments, it says here it is living and it is abiding. God's work is alive. It is, it is active, and it abides, it endures, it lasts, it is not passing away. And notice how Peter describes the condition of those who have been born again by believing the gospel. They have been born of a, they have a condition that is not perishable. Not been born of a perishable seed, but born into something which is imperishable. He says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. In other words, God's work in their life, it is not fleeting. It will not perish. It will endure, and it will endure for all of eternity. It is everlasting. It will remain forever. Finally, for those who believe in the gospel, who are trusting Christ for their salvation, they have something now that endures. They have something that does not perish. They have something to cling to amid all the sorrowful and despairing conditions of the world around them. So even though everything around us crumbles and falls and fades and vanishes, our health, our accomplishments, our welfare and security, even when our lives are gone and are totally forgotten here on this earth, God's work endures. What does that mean? It means this, that the gospel provides for us an everlasting hope and an imperishable Provides for us an everlasting and imperishable hope. In Christ, we can have hope that there is a solution to this terrible, wilting world. In Christ, we can have hope that there is more beyond this life. In Christ, we can have hope that someday my trials will end. Remember the context of this book. Peter's readers are feeling oppressed. They're living in as, as exiles. They're suffering from persecution and oppression that's all around them. And this passage should remind them that their trials, just like everything else in this life, those trials are fleeting. Someday they will be gone. Yet God's imperishable work and the promise of the gospel remain. And if that work and that promise has been born in us, then we too remain. Even as all of our trials and sufferings fade and vanish around us, we remain. And that is hope, isn't it? That's incredible hope. In light of this, I think it's important then to ask, is that hope real within you today? Are you currently a benefactor of God's imperishable work? Have you embraced Christ by faith? And are you resting in the hopeful promises of the gospel. If you're not, all you've got going for you then is this fleeting, perishing, failing life that will certainly cause you nothing but someday but despair because it all withers. It all fades. And if this world is all that you have going for you and everything that you're holding on to, it's destined for destruction and decay. Everything that you value someday will be forgotten. And that is a sad place to be, my friend. And that is why God beckons that you come to him. To trust in Christ, to receive the only thing that is imperishable. The only thing that endures this fleeting world, perhaps today would be the day that you finally realize the futility of a life lived without Jesus. That life will only, will only end in despair. 
and instead grab on to a life that offers incredible hope and a future, a life that can be found in Jesus. And for those of us who found this life, who have this imperishable blessing and hope to hold on to, we have an amazing hope, don't we? We have an amazing hope, a hope that helps you make sense of any trial, a hope that even though everything around you starts to crumble and fade away, you cling to that hope because you believe that something glorious awaits. So be encouraged by this, especially when life is a challenge. There is a future, my friend. There is a hope that endures when all of this passes. Cling to that. And that truth will help you greatly help you persevere through any trial. So there's a great contrast in this passage. The fleeting and perishable nature of this life is contrasted with the imperishable work of God and the hope that is found in Christ. That is Peter's main point in verses 23, 24, 25. But what about verse 22? 22 is a bit peculiar, especially because it's hard to make sense of how it connects now to this magnificent contrast we see in Verses 23 through 25. Peter writes in verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So while verses 23 through 5 provide a great exposition about theological realities, now here in verse 22 what we see is Peter is describing how those theological realities ought to change us. This hope that we have in Christ ought to move us. It ought to motivate us. It ought to stir us to action in some way. It ought to impact our lives and our relationships. And verse 22 then contains two main consequences that happen when a person has this hope in God. The first is a consequence that has largely been accomplished. And the second is a consequence that needs to be worked on. It needs to be pursued. So let's look at the first consequence, the first part of the verse. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now this is one of the more difficult phrases, passages in 1 Peter to interpret. Commentators have all kinds of different views about the nuances of the meaning of this. But the emphasis of it is clear. The emphasis is on purification that comes through obedience. We see that the believers here, they have purified their souls, Peter says. The image here is one of cleansing. Peter is intentionally bringing up and evoking images and remembrances of the Old Testament. When uh, Israelites, they constantly had to gauge in these ritualistic washings. They wanted to go to the ceremony or the sacrifice or of sorts. They had to go through a ceremonial cleansing process, which involved getting large basins and lots of water and special towels. And they would just, you know, ceremoniously wash themselves multiple times in special ritualistic ways. And in doing so, it was supposed to somehow symbolically make them pure, symbolically make them clean, so that then they could go into the temple, they could approach God, they could engage in the sacrifices and the festivals. And by invoking this kind of purification image, Peter is saying that these believers, they are spiritually cleansed. Their souls have been washed. They have been purified. Essentially, there's been a washing off of all the moral filth and grime and soot of this world. The filth and the dirtiness and the ugliness of this world has been washed off them. And this is an act that they have done to themselves. It's not just something that God has done to them. It's something that they have actively done. The text says that they have purified themselves. So the believers here have made efforts to cleanse themselves from the nasty 
ugly, dirty things in this world. Perhaps that means they're not using some of the languages of the world. They're not participating in some of the morally terrible, filthy, ugly, debased practices of the world. Perhaps they're not enjoying some of the same entertainment options that this world provides. The the list could go on and on. It could mean all sorts of different things. But the point is this. They look different. They look clean. They look changed. And notice how they've done so. They've done so through obedience to the truth. Truth here, specifically the truth of the gospel. They've been obedient to the gospel. They've obeyed the gospel. And as they have obeyed the gospel, it has purified them. It has sanctified them. But what does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, it means two things, really. The gospel calls us to believe in Jesus. So obeying the gospel is coming to him and putting our belief and our faith and trust in him. But the gospel also calls us to repent. Repent and believe in the kingdom of God is the gospel. So it also means to turn away and to submit our lives to Christ and orient our lives around Christ and to follow him. So the gospel just doesn't call us to believe in Christ and to have a mental assent to who he is and what he's done. It calls us also to repent and to turn away from the things of this world and to follow Christ's example, to turn towards Christ's world, to follow and obey him. The gospel calls us to pursue holiness. And that is, of course, one of the key things that Peter has been exhorting us to do all throughout chapter 1, to be holy. As obedient children, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy, he says. So, obeying the truth of the gospel is really twofold. It's responding to Christ in faith and believing in him, but it is also turning away from this world and turning towards Jesus in repentance. Getting rid of the filth in the moral decay of this world and pursuing Christ's holiness as we follow him in Lord, as Lord. And doing this, this is what spiritually then purifies us, turning to him in these ways. And the motive for this change, the motive for this pursuit of holiness, it comes from the imperishable hope that we have in Christ. So our hope in the gospel, our hope in Christ, should compel us to grow in holiness. Our imperishable hope in the gospel compels us to grow in holiness. Believing in the gospel compels us to be pure. It compels us to obey the truth. It compels us to repent of our sinful ways. Because this hope tells me that this world that I live in now, it is fleeting. It is perishing. It is fading, and this hope informs us that in Christ we are no longer part of this world. We are sojourners. We are pure people of God living in exile in a dirty, ugly, filthy, wretched world, a world that is hell-bent on destruction and chaos. And this gospel, this hope, turns our affections now away from this world and instead towards the world to come rather than the world that we presently live in. We leave that world behind, and as a result, the sinful, ugly, dirty things of this world become increasingly distasteful to us. And we increasingly want the holiness that our hope is directed towards. We increasingly want the holiness of the world that we anticipate and are longing for. And so we impurify ourselves from the unholiness that this present world offers. Let me illustrate this point. 
with an analogy from my own experience. I've often been slow to adapt to changes in technology. Not because I don't appreciate great new technology, I do. It's more because I'm waiting for prices to come down. I'm waiting for the latest model to come out. So I was probably one of the be- last, last people here at Bethel Church to get standard, def- to get, I'm sorry, to get um, still watching standard definition television. Three years ago, though, we finally took the plunge and got a HD TV with a Blu-ray player. And it was glorious. <laughs> now I can see every blade of grass in the football field. I could make out the skin pores on the news anchors at night. And I had finally transitioned from the world of standard definition to the world of high definition. And there was no going back. We deleted the old standard definition channels from our favorites list. We populated our new favorites list with our high definition channels. And I personally like to watch movies. And so we began to accumulate Blu-rays instead of standard definition DVDs. In fact, I've been slowly replacing all my standard definition DVD movies with the same movie in Blu-ray. Why? Because I can't go back. I can't bring myself to watch a standard definition movie if I don't have to. My hope is now oriented towards the world of high definition and Blu-rays. And I want nothing to do with that old, fleeting, failing, obsolete world of standard definition VHS cassettes. My new allegiance to this new world, it's changed my behavior. And I've been slowly purifying myself and my household from standard definition content. My new allegiance, my new hope has compelled me to change my life in several ways. You get the point? The world is outdated. The world's fading. You know what? This world is obsolete. There's a much better world out there. There's the world to come. And when our hope is placed in this world through the gospel, we live our lives for this world. We orient our lives around this world and the hope that that world calls us to. So our imperishable hope in the gospel compels us to grow in holiness. So therefore, I need to ask you, if you have embraced this imperishable hope, which is, which is the gospel, how has that changed you? What in this fleeting world have you turned away from? How much is your heart, how much is your life oriented towards holiness? See, if your hope in the gospel is real, you should feel compelled to purify yourselves from the sin of this fleeting world because that hope begs you towards holiness. You put your new identity In Christ, you want to live as a child of God. You live as a person with hope. You live for that world and the world to come. Not the one that's fading and obsolete. Not the world of sin and selfishness, but the new way of holiness. Your hope compels you towards holiness. Is that happening in your life? If your hope is real, it ought to. And there's something else that this hope also ought to compel us towards. It also ought to compel us toward love. Notice how Peter exhorts his readers now in verse 22, second half, when he turns to the subject of love. When he see, and we see that the believers have purified themselves for sincere brotherly love. And then they are commanded, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The focus here is not on some general type of love, like love for God or love for your neighbor. This is a very specific type of love. It's love for one 
another. It is love for those within the church. It is love for those within, with which we have a Christian brotherly love. But now, now why does Peter exhort his readers to love one another? With all this talk about this fleeting nature of life and the transiency of this world and the hope we have in the gospel, why focus now on the importance of love between believers? Why is that Peter's big exhortation? Why does he command them to be sexually pure? Why not an exhortation to worship and praise God for this incredible hope that we have in Christ? Why not an exhortation, a call to evangelize, that we might share this great hope with others? Why love within the church? Well, think again about the nature of our hope. Even though everything around us fails and fades, our hope tells us that the work of God lasts and endures. And if I'm in Christ, that work of God has been born in me, and so now because of Jesus' work, I last. My life, my soul, it endures. And as God eventually brings me through the trials of my life into his new world, which is a new heavens and a new earth where things do not fail or fade, it is an everlasting and imperishable reality. My hope in the gospel is my hope in this life to come after everything else in this life fades. But my hope tells me that There's something else in this world that endures, not just me. Everyone else who also has had this hope of the gospel born in them. They also endure. They also last. The hope of the gospel is that God's people will all outlast this failing world. That together we will eventually be brought into the next life. And Peter knows this, so he exhorts his believers, these believers by saying, while you are yet part of this world, love the, the things in this world that last, namely one another. Don't love your hobbies. Don't love your job. Don't love your bank accounts. Those things don't last. But these relationships, these bonds of fellowship within the church, they last. They endure. Love them. You see, relationship, these relationships, they're actually a foretaste of the very hope that you have. Part of the hope in the gospel is that we will exist with believers for all of eternity. So like it or not, Christian, a big part of your hope is a continuance of this experience right here. These relationships, these people, this experience, if it weren't for God's work, these relationships wouldn't matter. They would all fade just like everything else. But it is precisely because of God's work that these relationships matter because they last. Because these things last, they are far more valuable than anything else that this world has to offer. Because they are, in fact, a foretaste of the world that all who believe in Christ are going to. So love these relationships. They are part of your hope in the gospel. Doesn't it all make sense? Do you see how this all fits together? We have this hope in the work of God, which is everlasting and imperishable. And this hope then should cause cause us, compel us towards two things. First, it should compel us to grow in holiness. And second, it should, this imperishable hope in the gospel should compel us to earnestly love one another. It should. Because both things endure. Our life of holiness endures. 
and our relationship with other believers endure. And our hope compels us to value those things most that endure, far above anything else, because at the end of the day, our hope tells us to value what lasts. An imperishable hope and an imperishable love. That's Peter's message here at the conclusion of chapter 1. But how ought this exactly look within the church? Peter gives us some clues with some well-chosen adjectives. He, said we, he says we've been called to a sincere brotherly love and a love that is earnest, a love that proceeds from a pure heart. So let me just quickly unpack a few aspects of this love. First, he says our love needs to be authentic. Peter tells his readers that his, this love must be sincere. It needs to come from a pure heart. In other words, he's saying, don't be fake. Your relationships need to be genuine. They need to be real. The church ought not to be like the mall, where tons of people congregate and gather, but they don't really know each other. Nor ought the church be a place where there's so much pretense and posturing and pretending. There ought to be authenticity here. After all, our hope tells us that we'll be eternally authentic and real with one another, so let's start some of that now. The church ought to be a place of authentic relationships and love. Second, the love here needs to be affectionate. Peter states that we're created for a brotherly love. The meaning here is one of genuine affection, so that when we gather, we're like brothers together. When we gather, we're like sisters together. In the church, we shouldn't just tolerate one another. Are gathering personally together. We are family. We relate to one another like family. And we have an authentic affection for one another. We smile. We shake hands. We're interested in one another. We find joy in each other. And there is a genuine affection for each other here. After all, this hope tells us that we will have an eternal affection for one another. So let's start some of that now. The church ought to be a place of family and affection. So love within the church, it is affectionate, it is authentic, and third, it also needs to be expressed. It needs to be seen. It needs to be manifest in our church body. Love is a verb. It's something that is done, and Peter says that it ought to be done with earnestness. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, he says. In other words, love with zeal. Love with eagerness. Love with enthusiasm. Have a yearning to love each other. Have a zealously expressed love for the others in this church body. This, and this ought to happen in so many diverse ways in the church. It happens generally, uh, commonly, certainly, when we serve and we sacrifice for one another. And we hear of needs within the church body and respond to those needs with help, with care, with effort. We are an, an eternal family, after all. And there ought to be constant expressions, then, of this giving and mutual care and sacrifice for these relationships. This love ought to just be expressed as we serve and care for one another. But it also happens as we help each other grow in holiness. You see, we ought to be blessing one another in our relationships here. And perhaps the most important way that we can bless each other is by helping each other be pure by helping each other grow in holiness, by working together so that we all become mature in the faith. Which means we spur each other on towards righteousness. We say the hard things. We support and encourage and admonish and advise and help each other grow to become more like Christ. We all lock arms in this and we pursue this goal of maturity in Jesus together. 
We help each other grow in holiness. All of that is an expression of love. It's a loving thing to help your brother and sister become more like Christ. The relationships of love, that's what we're called to in the church. And that is what our hope in the gospel drives us towards. God's work in us compels us to have these kind of expressions with one another. So how active are these kind of relationships in your own life? I know this is a large church, right? This is a very large church. And finding these kinds of relationships experience, it can sometimes be very difficult in a place like this. But just because it's hard doesn't mean that you get a pass not to do it. You need to be in relationships with others here, not just kind of casual, passing, fleeting acquaintances. There need to be people here where you go deep, where there's an authentic friendship, and there's earnest expressions of service and sacrifice for one another. There needs to be spiritual fruit and holiness that is born in your life because of the people around you. I know sometimes that's hard. I know sometimes there's some weird people here. Maybe you're one of those weird people. But this is Peter's command to us today. Love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Where are you doing that in this place? Where do you have those kind of relationships in this place? We've all, if you struggle to make those kind of connections, we have all sorts of programs and events to help you with that. Small groups, men's, women's ministries, celebrate recovery youth and student ministries. We have a host of volunteer opportunities. You can get involved and you can serve and serve alongside people and build relationships as you do that. Make sure you're connected in the relationships here at the church, but just don't be connected. Live out the authentic, affectionate, and earnest life of love that Peter calls us to here. Your hope in the gospel ought to compel you to live in this way just as it compels you towards holiness. Because those are the two very things you're hoping in. So you want them now with increasing zeal. And finally, if you really don't feel compelled in your life to grow towards holiness, if you really don't feel compelled to have a deep, loving relationships here within the church, and I have to be honest, I have to question if that hope in the gospel is real in your life. It certainly isn't very deep. Real hope, real faith in God's imperishable work necessarily yields consequential results in our life. And if you really believe in Jesus' work, if that hope is real and it is so precious to you, then you will be driven to purify yourself in holiness. If you really believe that this world is fading away, that it will soon all be gone, but that a new life and a new world is found in Christ and you will be driven to delight in the relationships that can be found here in the church because you know that these are a foretaste of the very thing that you are hoping for and a yearning for holiness and a yearning for loving relationships within the church. If you lack that, then I question if you have an authentic faith. Total absence of these things are perhaps an indication that you have not, in fact, been born again. Perhaps today would be a day that you do truly seek the Lord and grab on to the incredible hope that Christ offers you. And for those of us who have this hope, maybe you find deep and lasting encouragement by it. When the trials and the sufferings and the failures of this world surround us, may this hope 
Allow us to persevere through that, even as everything around us crumbles and fades. We have this hope to cling to. It helps us through everything. But also may this hope compel us to be the kind of people that God calls us to. May it compel us to be deeply burdened for holiness and a place, a church, where we earnestly owe that we would love one another. That's what the hope in the gospel does. And may it bear that fruit in our lives and here in our church.